Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, in recent weeks, we've seen a, a ramping up of protests against the locating of facilities, housing refugees and asylum seekers in particular areas. This has occurred in, in both cities and towns across the state. It's important not to overstate the numbers at these gatherings, but it is a significant shift from where we were before. It's also the case that many of the protests include local people who are not ill-disposed to those fleeing war, but do have genuine concerns. However, there are definitely far-right activists, and those who monitor them suggest that there's no more than 30 at the most, who are agitating and organising and inflaming emotions of local people, particularly through the spreading of disinformation online, and as I say, in terms of inciting protests and that sort of thing in more recent weeks. As we all know, the war in Ukraine and conflicts of one kind or another in various parts of the developing world has led to a large increase in the numbers seeking refuge or asylum in this country. And that seems to have been something of a, a, a boon for those who want to preach what I suppose is largely described as hate against immigrants. But what, if anything, does this mean for politics? Other Western countries have seen a rise over recent decades of far-right parties, largely based on taking positions against immigration. We haven't here, which is a very positive thing, but could that change? And if it does, how will it happen? Joining me to discuss this is Kevin Cunningham, the Managing Director of Research Company Ireland Thinks and a lecturer in politics in TU Dublin. Kevin, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mick. Kevin, your most recent poll in Ireland thinks in the Sunday Independent, I think it was on the 5th of February, it showed that public attitudes towards refugees appear to be going through some changes. Just in broad terms, would you outline that for us? Yeah, so the most recent poll we did, and I think it was the front page, was the one which asked people whether they thought we'd taken in too many refugees in the past year. And a majority agreed with that sentiment. And that was the significant change, really, because I think if we went back a a year or so ago when the numbers of uh, refugees were coming from Afghanistan and there's a little bit of debate about how many refugees we should take in, the public were actually much more liberal, let's say, than what the government was looking for at that point in time. And even when the crisis happened in Ukraine, people were very open, people were pushing for higher numbers in relative terms. But those that's, those sorts of attitudes have changed a little bit. It, it's worth bearing in mind, and Mick, you, you said it there yourself, that the Irish public, generally speaking, is more uh, generous, I think is the best word, uh, than its European counterparts. There's a question uh, separately in the European Social Survey, which asked people whether the government should be generous in judging uh, people's uh, applications for refugee status. And it's it's a really good question because 
out of all the questions that are asked in that enormous survey, it's the one that correlates most strongly with uh, support for far-right political parties. And as you said, you know, the only thing that we know about far-right political parties is that they tend to have this particular position on immigration. And Irish attitudes on that question of whether we should be generous or not tend to be at the highest end of the scale. Like Irish attitudes tend to be much more uh, towards the people that strongly agree or agree that the government should be generous in, in judging uh, applications. And, and that's an interesting thing. But we asked this same question as well, I, just from a personal academic perspective, I asked the same question as well in this particular survey. And uh, it showed like a slight decline in, the, in that relative generosity. So that, yeah, there, to answer your question, yeah, there, there is a, a little bit of a change, uh, a shift in attitudes towards uh, immigration. Now, the, you know, the far right isn't that majority of people who, who believe that we've taken in too many refugees. The far right or, or the kind of strong anti-immigration attitudes are probably, you know, down around 10 to 14 percent or thereabouts. In fact, I should add that, you know, when we did that poll, um, it was a poll for the journal.e, in fact, around Afghan refugees, uh, we actually asked people whether they consider voting for a party or a candidate that holds strong anti-immigration uh, views. And back then, 14% of people said yes. And, you know, that that's kind of around the marker for which you might say that there's a there's an audience for that particular style of political party and that particular uh, particular uh, view, I guess. Yeah, and I suppose the first thing that strikes me, Kevin, is that, as you said, it was compared to a year ago. No. No matter what the story is, we have taken in certainly north of 50,000 Ukrainians because basically, and it should be pointed out, some countries have taken in far more, even some European countries. And between that and between the increase in, in what are um, international protection people who'd be coming mainly from the developing world, also fleeing various kind of pestilence or war. I mean, we've taken in so many, we're obliged to, and as you say, very welcoming in a lot of ways, even with the best will in the world, it would have been highly unusual if there was no shift whatsoever in respect to people's attitudes in that kind of environment. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's true. I mean, as you say, uh, Austria is one country that's taken in, uh, you know, even on a per capita basis. I mean, people say Ireland's very generous, but there are countries that have definitely taken in at more and more on a per capita basis than Ireland have. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, if you look at the, the chart of the number of uh, applications, at least uh, for refugee status, it's been quite large uh, relative to previous periods, particularly the last two or three months. Uh, that That's definitely there. And, you know, what, what's normally said about these particular attitudes is that, you know, the, at least the academic evidence suggests that it isn't usually related to the numbers of refugees and the numbers of, of immigrants in the country, those sorts of general attitudes. But in this case, as you say, it could arguably be because the, the numbers are significantly larger, though it is worth bearing in mind that the, the total numbers that we're talking here in terms of as a share of the population are still uh, minuscule. You know, it's it's still it's not it's not nearly the case that you know, these are uh, likely to overwhelm in, entire systems that we have. It's just it's unlikely in that respect. Um, but no, you're absolutely right that the numbers are significantly larger than they would have been before. Yeah, and I think, as you said, just purely in terms of the numbers coming into the country, it would still dwarf the number of people over the years who've come in to work here, which the economy needs and all that sort of thing. People from the likes of, of um, 
countries within the EU. So the, the, the overall numbers as such are not massive whatsoever. And this horrible term, Ireland is full. I mean, it's a complete fallacy altogether. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm quite interested in, as you say, the the political dynamics of all of this. Yeah, coming to that, yeah. And the, as you said before, like the support for the far right, it has steadily increased. Like it's often um, argued that the, the rise of the far right is some function of either global financial crisis or whatever reason that's emerged in the last couple of years. But they've actually increased very, very steadily since the 1980s. In fact, it goes all the way back, even from the 80s to the 90s, they increased on average from 2 to 4% on average across Europe, then to 6% by the 2000s, then they averaged 8% by 2010, literally decade for decade. Their average share of the vote has increased like by, by 2% per decade. And it's been really, really steady. And I think it, it's often easy to kind of target specific events as, as the reason why their support in particular is rising. But I think there's something just more fundamental moving around in terms of the capacity, particularly of uh, more working class voters in particular, to vote for uh, sort of right wing political parties. And if you're voting for a right wing party and you're uh, in a work class uh, area, it's more likely it's going to be a more populist right wing party, basically. And I think that's that's a lot of what's what's happening here. And is it fair to say, Kim, within that context, that to the greatest extent, over the same period, we've been relatively insulated from that in this country? Yeah, oh, I mean, totally. You know, the, the the numbers of European countries for which don't have a far-right uh, political party has, has been dwindling. To the extent, it used to be the case that Spain, Portugal and Ireland were some of the exceptions. Now, Spain and Portugal do have significant far-right parties. And in fact, Spain was one of the more interesting ones because they had, and they proved the point uh, initially at least, that you know the volume of immigration wasn't really strongly related because Spain actually has far more immigration and far more refugees than you know Austria and the Netherlands, where this thing particularly was particularly strong. Um, but I, there's one explanation I find uh, that's that's often not stated as much, and it's kind of my little explanation as to why Ireland doesn't have as significant a far-right political party. And it's because our electoral system, in part, I think, is playing a, a significant role or, uh, in which we don't just have PR, but we have PR by STV. Um, and the thresholds for getting elected are quite low. Uh, in fact, they're lower than anywhere else. I mean, you could conceivably get elected to a national parliament in Ireland on a very, very small amount of votes. And as a result we end up with a lot of independent candidates and the indep- like and that is completely unique it's worth it's worth bearing in mind so no other political system has independent candidates and virtually no other political system doesn't have a far right party so i think those two things are are definitely related especially when you observe some of the independent candidates and the nature of the types of positions that they take um you can think of Ronan Murphy who would have left Fine Gael particularly over a refugee uh statements that she would have made around refugees. You can think of Noel Grealish's comments around uh, Africans uh, a number of years ago. Uh, Manny McGrath has made various different comments about Charles Schwab and, and all sorts of kind of uh, conspiracy theories. All those sorts of votes are really being captured by independent candidates. And we can see that also in our polling, that when we ask people who they're voting for and their attitudes towards issues like immigration, there is a correlation between 
whether they're supporting independent candidates and, wh- and their attitudes towards immigration being particularly sort of anti-immigrant. Uh, there's also Ain't Too, it's worth bearing in mind, which, although I don't think Padre Tobin uh, espouses not, nearly as a strong position uh, on immigration as those other uh, independent candidates, certainly the vote that Ain't Too seems to get uh, in the polls seems to be uh, relatively con- highly concentrated amongst that kind of anti-immigration subset as well. Okay, and within that, two things. First of all, in terms of that element of the vote that's attributable to those kind of independents and the N2, for instance, it's not necessarily that this is one of the main reasons they vote for them, is it? It's just that they might be of that constituency. Um, do you know what I mean? That if, for example, if a number of those were banded together as a recognised, what you might call, far-right entity, I wonder, would they get the same kind of vote as they do as independents, for instance? Uh, I I kind of think they would. I you know right. I think there's a there's just there's, there's definitely an independent vote uh, to some extent. But that you know, there are so many unsuccessful independent candidates right throughout the country, and uh, these are the ones that tend to be successful. It tends to be the more there are obviously left wing independent candidates. There's no doubt about that. Um, but there's a particular variation of a relatively right-wing independent candidates that does tend to be successful in Irish politics. And it's also worth bearing in mind that when you look at support for, uh, say, the rise of support for Donald Trump in particular in the primaries, I'm not talking about the general election, but in the primaries because he attracted a very specific vote in those primaries. One of the best predictors of support for Donald Trump in the primaries was areas which had uh, for which the population had declined. There were fairly rural, uh, small communities in, in parts of uh, the United States and uh, the same sort of goes for the United Kingdom. Areas where population had been declining quite steadily over a number of years tended to be the ones which had shifted most uh, most vigorously towards the Conservative Party in the context of Brexit and had voted for Brexit. These kind of smaller communities that have uh, you know ongoing net emigration, let's say, towards urban areas, tend to have that same dynamic. And I I wouldn't want to sort of guess the kind of psychology, the community, the, the loss of a sense of community, a sense of loneliness or whatever it is. There's something there that's related to those two sorts of concepts, I think, as well, that hasn't quite been teased out. I know there's some, you know, interesting books like Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, which would kind of point to the same sort of ideas. But yeah, uh, the relationship between independence and this uh, far-right voting is, is definitely there in certain, in certain, uh, in certain candidates, all right. That is very interesting. And the other thing I think, and this is probably fairly obvious, is um, Sinn Féin, I think, definitely played a role over the last 20 years in term, particularly in urban areas, perhaps more working class areas, areas where you might expect a populist right party to gain a foothold as they have in other countries and Sinn Féin, to give them their due, ensure that didn't happen wherever they had strength. They they made it obvious that they were not going to be anti-immigration. But as I see it, uh, Kevin, a change there is Sinn Féin, because now they've become more popular, they're moving closer to the centre, they sniff power effectively, as any party in their position would. So they've moved away from that position and is there a certain vacuum left there behind? So there's a couple of big things there and I think this is the this is the really interesting question. There was a paper written by uh, my colleague, I guess, collegiate sort of academic colleague uh, as well as Sunday Indo colleague uh, Ono Mali in 2008 who emphasised the fact that Sinn Féin had captured 
a young male working class vote at that point in time. And that at that point in time, certainly I would say more more so the type of voter that, say, the BNP would have gotten uh, would tended towards that particular character. And Sinn Féin certainly had that vote in the mid 2000s uh, when Sinn Féin were on 6% or so. And Sinn Féin are very much a different party now. Uh, they... I, you know, to go into Sinn Féin's vote, it's it's you could imagine Sinn Féin's vote in terms of a Venn diagram where one circle is working class and the other circle is uh, younger people. Uh, and that means that on the kind of the two edges of that, you have younger middle electoral people and older working class people, all both within the same party. And an issue like immigration is actually proving a little bit difficult for Sinn Féin because it's older working class women who tend to be, have the most um, anti-immigration attitudes on this particular issue. And that is very different to the young working class male that used to be the kind of body of vote for the far right. You see, the far right, as they've moved up, as we discussed earlier, in terms of their support levels, they've also managed to get different types of voter, uh, you know, Brexit and all that sort of stuff, all those sorts of Radical right voters uh, have tended to have a slightly different character over time. I mean, ever since the far right have gone above that kind of four or five percent threshold, they started to win votes in very different uh, areas of the electorate. Um, so that's that's certainly one thing in relation to uh, in relation to Sinn Fein. But I think the key point uh, for Sinn Fein is that this is this is clearly just a bad issue for them because Sinn Fein's vote is now very similar to a classic centre-left, left-wing party. And that's normally what left-wing parties have. They have working-class voters and young voters. They're both voting for the left-wing party because of the economic issues that they both face. Younger people, generally speaking, don't have the same level of assets as older people. And working-class, low-income voters are also quite similar uh, economically. But they face these difficulties when it comes to these social issues that split them apart. And this is famously a strategy uh, you, uh, there's a strategy that's famously used by uh, certain sort of right-wing um, political strategists like Linton Crosby, who worked for Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party, but also before then uh, in Australian politics, when he started to you know, leverage immigration as a way to split uh, the Labour Party, as it was in the Australian Labour Party, the ALP, uh, around in 2001. The Tampa Affair is one particular example uh, in which he did it to try to divide the left. And it's it's a kind of a classic strategy in some respect. I'm not saying that the Irish government are, are intentionally doing this, but you know, obviously the repercussions for Sinn Féin are difficult because they're trying to hold together this coalition for which this particular issue is very difficult. And there's a whole separate thing on immigration as an issue, uh, I, I, I'd like to add as well, because immigration is just one of these issues that doesn't depoliticize, right? It doesn't kind of come and go to the same extent as other issues do. It, it kind of la- lingers around for many, many years. And in fact, my PhD, uh, which is funded by, a, a, well, at least part of the PhD, which was funded by the European Commission, the whole topic was trying to figure out how do you depoliticize immigration? What do you do? And, and can you do it at all? You know, and that was, that was a huge amount of work and, you know, leveraging quite significantly, you know, the statement that was made, if I'm going to read out this, this quote from Mm. Michael McDool back in 2004, this isn't attacking Michael McDool or anything, but it's a, it's a very uh, common strategy in relation to this issues. 
He says, if we had not enacted this legislation, and he's speaking in relation to the 2004 Immigration Act, the opportunity for right-wing racism to enter Irish politics would have been enormous. He says, our system, like many systems in Northern European political world, is wide open for people to campaigning on anti-immigration issues. And subsequently, uh, after the 2007 election, he also said, there are some issues if I was minded in the morning for which I could get 10 to 12% in the dole, like if I make immigration an issue, and I'm not tempted to do so because it would be a fairly nasty enterprise, but you could do it. So there is this idea, right, which is a, a very normal idea that is basically the idea of that if you adopt the strategies, adopt the policies of these far-right parties, if you basically, the government enacts relatively stringent uh, immigration policies, then that is the sort of thing that's going to decrease support for these anti-immigration parties. And that is not just Michael McDowell, it's, uh, you know, the Social Democratic Prime Minister, Mette Fredrickson, has basically embarked on that particular strategy for a number of years. Um, and that's that's basically where a lot of European politics has ended up. They've basically decided, right, the only way we're going to address this is by adopting far more restrictive policies in relation to immigration. Then we can kind of move into other issues and, and try and try and move the conversation or move at least the, the politics into a more favourable territory. But that's generally where a lot of people are thinking. And maybe that's where, even with the recent quotes from Leo Franker of the yeah. weekend, maybe that's where things are starting to go a little bit in Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. That would that would fit perfectly in with where it appears. Certain that Leo Varadkar certainly has given the impression that he'd see what was the word he used fair, fair, firm, and hard. And, and hard, I think yeah. there was controversy over that word hard. He suggested later it referred to uh, people traffickers, but I just wonder about that. That's a handy kind of out in terms of people traffickers. But in relation to that, Kevin, and in your opinion, is that a strategy? that has been shown to work or can it work or does it just play into the hands of the far right? No, well, so I spend months and months in the National Library collecting uh, every time anyone spoke, uh, any time anyone made a claim or a statement about immigration between 95 and 2010 and my colleagues across those European countries did this to try to understand how does this issue become salient? How does it not become salient? How do policies impact on this? If a government introduces a new kind of aggressive policy, does that actually decrease the salience of the issue? In broad terms, uh, it, it doesn't, uh, is the answer. When you say it doesn't work? Is, it doesn't is, is work, no. Right, that's, right. That's, that's, the, that's the issue. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work. While there are some sort of indications, like the introduction of that particular referendum that happened in Ireland, that did seem to kill the issue at the time, and like Brexit seems to have killed uh, the issue in relation to uh, immigration to some extent in the UK. Um, overall, when you look at loads of different countries like what happened in Austria and in Switzerland, uh, in the Netherlands, uh, taken in, in its totality, immigration doesn't depoliticize in the same way. And one of the principal reasons for this is because it becomes very wrapped with populism. And when I say populism, I mean just the sense that the elected politicians aren't really representing the interests of ordinary people. People become so disaffected by uh, what politicians are doing that they then, you know, lose trust and lose faith in them to be able to tackle the issue and uh, develop uh, sort of more extremist sort of views of, as to whether those those issues are being tackled at all. And then there's also just this fundamental 
problem, I guess, in that in a lot of cases, if you were to try to address this issue to the extent that some sub, a subset of the population wants you to, you're talking about deportations and a lot of things that are probably against, uh, you know, uh, the UN Convention of, of Human Rights uh, in this regard. And lots of legislation and um, human rights issues that, that the country has signed up to, and rightly, uh, in my view. Um, so I think it's, it's just one of those issues that's very, very difficult uh, to tackle. And, you know, another example is uh, uh, back in... 2014, we used to kind of advise British Labour politicians how to deal with the issue because it was raising in salience. UKIP were taking all our votes, basically, and, and UKIP were uh, taking a lot of votes in a lot of kind of key Labour heartlands. And we were trying to figure out what to do. Our strategy uh, was to initially was to at least to move the conversation on. And that was really, I think, the only way in which we could actually address this sort of issue. Uh, you know, coming out hard on immigration wasn't really going to do anything because we weren't really believable uh, even on that issue. The the only thing actually that the research does show, though, is that um, when it comes to integration policies, that's, you know, the extent to which, uh, you know, in, improving language skills and all that sort of stuff. In relation to integration, uh, the public is a lot more responsive. And maybe that's because... Uh, you know, often it's the left-wing parties are trying to in, in, introduce this sort of stuff, so maybe they're more trusted on those sorts of areas. But certainly, in in relation to integration policy, uh, there's there's definite wins that can be made by by government and by political actors. You know, once people can see that that uh, newcomers are sort of integrated, they are more likely to um, uh, be happy, I guess, about the arrangement. Of course, there's a whole debate about integration versus multiculturalism and that sort of stuff but quite a lot of european countries had moved for on from the multicultural uh, debate towards how do we actually address the issue because of how dominant um immigration became in, in in those those countries to know what's really happening subscribe to the irish examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong here, Kevin. You seem to be suggesting from that that we have come late to immigration being a salient issue here. It appears, certainly in recent months, that it has become that. And if that is the case, therefore, it's going to be very difficult to depoliticise it and it's here to stay as an issue. It's a question of how we deal with it from here on. And, well, in basic terms, whether we can learn from the mistakes of some other European countries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and the thing about the, the other European countries, like they they fought this thing tooth and nail. I mean, right from the start in a lot of cases. Uh, Pim Fortune was probably the first example of the most, of in the modern day of, you know, this was a, a far-right political actor in the Netherlands. Uh, he was probably the first of, of the kind of modern thing. He was an academic. He was... Uh, 
he was became very popular and then he was assassinated during the 2000 and, uh, 2002 uh, Dutch uh, general election and even though he was assassinated relatively late in the campaign his political party still did very very well even though it was just Pim Fortune's list was the name of the party and Pim Fortune himself was dead at that time it was too late for them to remove him from the list and yet you know he gained loads and loads of support uh, even at that election and that was just because there was just this it's just very difficult to unravel immigration, I think, because of how it gets so close to this populism sort of element that, that emerges in politics and how people who generally don't trust the political system uh, start, to, start to find the response to immigration uh, unsatisfactory, let's say. You know, because while the anti-immigration element in, in Irish politics is, you know, relatively low, and in fact, in a lot of countries, it, it might be a minority, the share of the population that are populist in their view of, pol- of politics is is very very big. It's it's almost it's it's certainly a majority of people would harbour you know populist views in relation to whether they think politicians can be trustworthy or not. And I presume that has has gone up immeasurably since the '08 crash and everything that emerged from it. I mean, I, I I don't have the sort of data to track that specifically, but people have said that the the lack of trust in politicians has been going on for a significant period of time, and you know you have to think as well. People were, have been around. Maybe perhaps a lot of people uh, trusted politicians, like for example Bertie Ahern. I mean, Bertie Ahern is kind of returning to the the front line of politics now, um, and you know he was involved in in the Mahan Tribunal and the whole lot. So I think. You know, there's a there's a legacy of loads of individual events. While, you know, it may not be the politicians that are there today, there's a whole series of events that have led up to uh, this kind of lack of faith, basically, in in political actors. And that's what that's what makes it more difficult to tackle, you know, an issue like this because because if the politicians aren't necessarily trusted on the issue, then it's just it's just a little bit more difficult. And you know, this is reflected as well. We had one question. It was an interesting question. It asked people whether they thought the reporting of the refugee situation in terms of the media was biased one way or another. And 42% said that they thought it was biased in favour of refugees and, and a relative minority thought uh, it, was bi- it was biased uh, against refugees. So that sort of narrative then feeds into media to some extent as well. And it, it just becomes... Uh, a little bit more difficult. I mean, obviously, in some jurisdictions, the tabloids, particularly in the UK, have obviously tried to raise the salience of the issue. And that was part of the research that we were doing, trying to understand the extent to which the news media actually propels this this issue as well. But, um, you know, at, at least in an Irish case, the, the journalists are kind of um, perhaps, you know, facilitating to, to, hold, to ensure that the issue doesn't uh, gain too much attraction, I guess. Okay, and the other element it would strike me to it, Kevin, is if there is a certain traction there for far-right entities of one sort or another, uh, we've seen none of it um, electorally so far, but let's say it's drifting in that direction. I suppose the the local elections in 24, uh, around May or June 24, will, will be an interesting indicator. But the thing that strikes me about that is... In in a lot of the countries you mentioned, there have been some kind of a, a charismatic figurehead who presents Trump in the obvious example, the anti-politician, the populist leader, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that kind of an individual. As of this minute, I don't see anybody that would fit that role. And 
is somebody in that role an integral part of any sort of right wing populist entity that tries to make uh, tries to make tracks electorally? Yeah, I think it's a very good point. The the kind of specific political actor, and it's generally always been an individual, and that maybe is why in Ireland it is through these independents who are individuals, I guess, in this regard. I think uh, one very interesting example is the kind of Peter Casey example during the Irish president, the recent Irish presidential debate. And I think what happened with Peter Casey was reminiscent of uh, the kind of effect with Jair Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro was just constantly ridiculed in the press over and over uh, in relation to his attitudes on a whole variety of things. But then I think as the press itself became less trusted, he then became, you know, the arch enemy of the press. And then he attracted support because, you know, I guess it's kind of my enemy's enemy is my friend sort of thing. And if you remember Peter Casey's presidential bit, in the immediate aftermath of that podcast he did with um, the Irish Independent, uh, he came out and apologized. And then he figured out he, what he'd said had, had actually made him more popular. And then he went back on his own apology. Uh, and I think if there had not been, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listened to that podcast, but I think people were more aware of it because of the reporting that followed on after the podcast, which basically identified the guy as, you know, uh, a relatively... Uh, ha- having outrageous views and, and the sorts of views that are not necessarily uh, on travellers in particular and people it like was that in travellers and yeah. but it's you yeah. know l- let's be honest it's the same sort of uh, oh yeah, yeah, same, yeah same type of yeah yeah just just I, reminding people what, what what Casey was involved in some people may yeah, have forgotten sorry, it, yeah. yeah 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 and I I think it I think it's that dynamic where these guys sometimes play off their uh, persona in the media where they they're, they're this kind of hated character in the media and then they kind of play that up and they kind of benefit from that. Rory Costello, another academic in, in UL, he, he's, uh, he did something a little bit more thorough from the last uh, general election just to identify uh, where, where the gap in the market was in relation to electoral politics in Ireland and identified that, you know, there was this right wing on social issues, left wing on economic issues uh, gap in that there are more voters there, but less parties there, I guess. Um, it's a little, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of, Individually, a lot of voters aren't necessarily in that particular block. Um, you often find that there are people who are relatively left wing for which there aren't as much uh, votes. And then there are people who are uh, right wing who on, on social issues who are somewhat left wing on economic issues. Normally, it's the extent to which they are pro redistribution uh, when it comes to the uh, economic issues and also kind of right wing on social issues. It's not the case that these people are pro-social welfare or anything like that. Um, so sometimes there's a little bit of a simplification there. But um, yeah, there's no doubt that there is this kind of area um, and I hope I'm not encouraging anyone to, to... I hope I'm not encouraging any political actors here, but I think this is a significant possibility. And, you know, Sinn Féin obviously are going to try to hold on to its coalition, which is essentially, you know, more younger and middle-class left-wing people and work-class um, working class people who might otherwise fall into uh, a right wing party, but Sinn Fein, I think overall are you know coming back to the Sinn Fein question. Overall, they're uh, a little bit unfairly, I think, targeted in relation to having a, a far right vote. In, va- in fact, they're not that far; they're not that different even from Fianna Fáil in relation to the composition of the share of their vote that would otherwise fall into a far right party. Yeah. You know, which we find find from from doing these sorts of questions over and over. And it, re- it really is in the independent candidate. So 
I often think the party that's probably also dealing with it in a different way is probably Fianna Fáil because, again, a lot of those independent candidates are often um, Fianna Fáil gene pool or whatever, you know, so there's, a, there's a, certainly a relationship there as well. So as as things stand, Kevin, on the basis of, of pretty extensive research and, and, and uh, that you've tapped into as well as done, would you predict that the next local elections in particular and the general election will follow, uh, I would suggest within three to seven or eight months after the local elections, would you predict that there will be a shift that we haven't previously seen in terms of candidates of the far right attracting, uh, well, more of a, it's, it's been a negligible vote. Bar no, I, I, I make your point about the independents, but those who are very openly far right, would you see any of those individuals making inroads at the next local elections? So I never turn down a prediction. Because uh, <laughs> unlike a lot of people, I just I quite like making them. Uh, but uh, what? So there's another element here to be aware of, right? In that elections are very, very volatile these days. People are making their minds up when the election is called itself. It seems that, like, if you're to pick a, an individual, it's not when the election itself happens, but rather it seems that a lot of people are making their mind up when an election is called itself. Um. So, I mean, just to put this into numbers, right? So uh, prior to the last general election, Sinn Féin rose from, you know, sort of mid-teens, maybe 15, 16%, up to around 24% in a matter of days, probably, um, in early January. Um, for Sinn Féin to rise that much, right? Let's say they, they made a 10-point gain. They're also probably losing some votes at the same time. There's probably all the, loads of other people moving around at the same time. So it's not just that 10% that are shifting when that's happening. It's at least like a, a significant multiple of that are moving around when the election gets called. It's not just in, in Ireland, but it's in lots of other countries this is happening. And it's happening in a pattern that's very different to historically because normally what you expect is when an election is called, it's the government support that improves. And that's partly because the the media environment in which it's operating actually changes when the election gets called. Because before the election you know, naturally enough, a lot of criticism on the government because that's the, the nature of trying to improve. That's the nature of progress in society. We criticise government to get things to improve. And then when the election gets called, it turns to like a head-to-head, -head, you know, where the opposition starts to getting, taking criticism. So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that there's so much volatility that it isn't actually sensible to make uh, predictions per se. But what I would say is that because I, I, I do want to make a, some sort of prediction, <laughs> that there is a significant potential for two different things to happen. I am far more reluctant to believe that Sinn Féin are definitely going to win the next general election. I think it's a, there's a significant possibility that that Sinn Féin vote could unravel. I think it's probably unlikely based on a whole variety of different things, but I think it's it's more likely than people might might think. I think AIM2 uh, certainly have this capacity, this potential capacity to surge at some point because there's a whole lot of voters that actually agree with generally their, their kind of position in, the, in that kind of market. I think uh, independence could do relatively well, although I went back and looked and uh, I thought that independence used to dip mid-cycle because people would focus on the parties because they don't get as much cut through and independence currently on 11 
but it seems that you know that that's actually quite normal for them to actually kind of hold hold their own. Um, the other possibility I often thought was that the Social Democrats could easily take a significant chunk of Sinn Féin as well. And this is partly because Sinn Féin's vote is uh, not really Sinn Féin. It's more anti-Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, more so than anything else. Um, it, it's often described as being a young vote. Uh, it's more of a working class vote than a young vote. It's it's definitely the two, but it's it's certainly more of a working class vote. But yeah, I think there are significant possible changes that might happen in the next general election. I think it's going to be very interesting because I think a lot of people are going to change their mind, whether those sorts of changes of mind cancel out and we end up with what, what, what the polls currently say, uh, I feel is perhaps less likely than, than not. But yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's quite possible that a, a political party and A2 is easily the best position for this. One of the other things about the opinion polls, just worth bearing in mind, and certainly the, the polls I do, tend to have A2 slightly higher. Uh, and that's because I prompt A2 and include them in the list. Um, uh, so not all polling companies will include all of the political parties in the list. So they might be an other. And so to actually say that you're voting for A2, let's say you'd have to say other from the options and then say A2 directly. So that's why there's a slight difference there in which I tend to have them at three to four percent and the others might be in the other polls they're down at zero or, or one or I think uh, Red Sea might have them tend towards two percent as well. But that that's why there's a there's a little bit of a difference there. And I, I genuinely think that the three to four is probably more realistic because if you look at how they did in the Dublin Bay South by election, I think they got maybe around three percent. I know it's a by election, but it wouldn't be an area where they would normally do well. I mean, their territory should be up towards Leitrim and uh, Roscommon and that particular part of the country and Longford. And, and, and that's kind of the area where you, you'd kind of see them doing a little bit better. Um, and they do regularly poll relatively well as well in Northern Ireland these days. Um, so I think there's a possibility that they might, you know, get 5% or 6%. I mean, that, that's quite possible. Um, just so we're talking about this particular possibility. But again, you know, you can never really tell. It's it's up for the voters to make up their own minds, really. The local, ele- but just coming back to your last point there about the, about the local and general elections, I think what's going to be particularly interesting about the next general election is that it will follow those local elections. And you're going to have all these new candidates that get elected to the local elections and then subsequently uh, find themselves at the, at the national election. And then also... Um, European elections do tend to influence uh, the salience of various different issues. Coming into the last European elections, uh, the environmental issues became very, very salient across uh, Europe because it was that run-up to those European elections for which, generally speaking, the public place uh, environmentalism as a very important issue when you ask them when it comes to European issues. When you ask them on a national issue, you know, it's about one in ten will say climate change is an important issue, but we ask them the European issues, it's it's much, much higher um, from the Eurobarometer series. So it's possible that whatever issue emerges in those European elections then carries through a little bit into the locals and then into the subsequent general election. And there's two issues that, generally speaking, are typically more salient. One is uh, climate change uh, and European elections. And the second is what we've been talking about for the podcast is immigration. So immigration and those sorts of issues also become particularly salient because it's on some level it is, it becomes this kind of pan-European uh, issue as well. And that's why UKIP 
were able to sustain themselves for so long. They did well in European elections and they became, you know, they were able to use that as a kind of um, a ground to kind of uh, blood candidates uh, in their locals and, and then in the general election in the UK as well. Kevin, fascinating insight. Um, and we'll definitely have you back uh, before the elections to um, give us some more predictions closer to the day. <laughs> but Kevin Cunningham, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mick. I'd also like to thank JJ Vernon, our engineer folks. As always, thank you for listening. Be back with you soon. Take it easy. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.